Good morning. It's a joy to be able to speak to you today. And I pray that God will use my words to encourage and strengthen you in your faith. We've come through a difficult week in the life of our nation. But our God is still established on his throne. His kingdom cannot be shaken. Governments and leaders may come and go. The nations will continue to rage. But God is still sovereign and in control. So on this day, let's continue to pray for our country, its leaders. Continue to pray for justice, for goodness, and righteousness. But knowing full well that ultimately only God through Jesus Christ is able to usher in a new world of perfect goodness, righteousness, justice, and peace. My message today centers around a minor character in the New Testament who played an important role in God's story of redemption. I'm talking about a man named Simeon who joined that small group of faithful people who bore witness to the very early days of Jesus' life on earth and who attested to Jesus' status as Savior of the world. With the coming of the new year and as we transition from 2020 to 2021, we might be thinking of how fast time seems to be going by. It seems like I had barely learned to write 2020 on the checks. But time does indeed fly. And perhaps you may have had cause to think about your own mortality and this stark question. Are you any more prepared for your death day. You know it is inevitable. We are all born to die. We were born to meet God. And we can postpone overdue bills. We can even ignore the check engine light for a while. But we can't, not even for one day, hold back our death. As one writer puts it, Life is too serious to trifle with. God is too holy to play games with. And eternity is too long to put at risk. So the question is, are you ready to die? I would remind all of us once again that without Christ, nothing else matters. Without Christ, it doesn't matter that you can take comfort in your bank account. Without Christ, it doesn't matter that you are enjoying good health for the time being. Without Christ, it doesn't matter if your children are successful and happy. Because without Christ, you are doomed. You are separated from hope and alienated from God. You really do have nothing. But with Christ, though you possess none of the things mentioned above, you possess everything. 
In our reading today, we will come across a man, a man from Jerusalem named Simeon, who knew what it was like to possess everything. Here was a man who had the greatest desire of his heart, fully satisfied. For he took up the baby Jesus in his arms and holding him for a moment, saw with his own eyes the awesome salvation of God. And so satisfying was that moment. He was able to declare that now he was ready and willing to die. So for the next few minutes today, I would like us to consider Simeon. And his story is found in the Gospel of Luke. We'll read from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. The Gospel writer Luke, above all the Gospel writers, Mark, Matthew, and John, is highly regarded as the impeccable and thorough historian paying close attention to detail and including events in Jesus' life that other writers omit. It's no surprise that his is the longest gospel, and if you add the book of Acts, you may realize that Luke has written much of the New Testament. 
but as detailed and as careful as he is, even Luke leaves out some important and familiar elements of the aftermath of the Christmas story. He tells us nothing about wise men, nothing of Herod and the slaughter of the innocents, nothing of the family's flight to Egypt. Instead of that information, which he leaves to Matthew, he is more interested in establishing eyewitness accounts. It's as if he wants to be consistent with what his Jewish readers would have expected according to the Old Testament requirement that two or three witnesses were needed to present evidence, to establish credibility, to corroborate the truth. And Luke calls upon the testimony of his parents, of the parents, Joseph and Mary, and upon an old man named Simeon, and later an old woman named Anna, the testimony of three witnesses. And you can add Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and the angels and the shepherds to that witness list too. Luke's goal is to establish the reliability and credibility of each of them. Luke wants us to know that the story he is telling us is not a myth that it is true, and that his eyewitnesses can be trusted to testify truthfully to the identity of this newborn babe. These are people of good character, God-fearers, obedient to the law, and more importantly, to the Spirit of God. Luke wanted to leave no doubt as to the identity of this Christ child, as for Jesus' earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, Luke wants to establish the fact that they are righteous people. Not self-righteous. Not just interested in making a show by going through the motions of Jewish law. And not a righteousness of their own. But a righteousness that comes from God alone. Luke takes pains to show that Mary's devotion to God is real. We see it in her response to the angel's words that she will bear the Son of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Even though she finds that word hard to believe. We see it in Joseph as, as told by Matthew. We see it in his reaction to the news that Mary is pregnant and that he is reluctant to put her to shame, not willing to expose her to the full weight of Jewish law. He doesn't want to hurt her needlessly. And we see his righteousness when he believes the words of the angel in a dream and goes on to take Mary for his wife. Together as parents, they have a heartfelt desire to observe all that the law requires and more, because they believe their child is who the angel declared him to be, the Son of God. So on the eighth day, they take their child to be circumcised, 
the circumcision would have been done locally, probably while they were still in Bethlehem. And we shouldn't overlook what seems to us so obvious. They name him Jesus. Jehovah saves. God saves. It's significant because it proves that they have believed the angel. And they are following the instructions given to them. And they are acting on that belief. They're fulfilling the law and they are led by the Holy Spirit. They have shown their confident faith in the words of the angel Gabriel by naming him Jesus. And now, after 40 days, they come to the temple in Jerusalem. At the temple, they came to do two things, really. They came for Mary's purification after childbirth, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 12, and which does require a sacrifice. And it's here where we are reminded again that Jesus' parents are poor, how do we know this? Because they give the least expensive sacrifice to birds. And so now Mary could be permitted back into the temple. And they also came to pay the five shekel silver ransom price for the firstborn male. Every firstborn male had to be given to the Lord not as a sacrifice, but rather as a dedication to the Lord. Jesus was not from the house of Levi, so he would not be expected to become a priest. But the five shekels were a payment or ransom to excuse him from priestly duties. That money would be used to help with the cost of running the temple. And at that particular time in Jewish history, it was not required that you take your child to the temple and present him to the Lord. In fact, it was unusual. But Mary and Joseph understood who their child was. And so they went above and beyond what was customary practice. In a real sense, they were saying that this isn't even our child. It harkens back to the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, who gave birth to a son, Samuel, through miraculous means. And she offers him back to the Lord, and she leaves young Samuel at the temple with Eli, the high priest. Joseph and Mary realize that this child does not belong to them, but is the son of the Most High God. Taking him to the temple, naming him Jesus, presenting him to the Lord are clear testimonies to the identity of this child. Joseph and Mary were righteous young people who knew the identity of their child, were devoted to God, obedient to his law, and led by the Holy Spirit. And now Luke is ready to call upon his next witness. And his name is Simeon, a common Jewish name that means God has heard. Simeon is called into the story by Luke to give testimony regarding this child, to testify to the validity of this child's Messiahship. What do we know about Simeon? 
not a lot. Behold, there was a man, just a man, a sinful man. But Luke tells us that like Joseph and Mary, Simeon was righteous and devout. Righteous as to his character and devout as to his practice. Whenever you see the word righteous used to describe someone in the Bible, it's not talking about a righteousness that is of their own, but that they are justified before God. Like, like you and me, Simeon was only made righteous by the grace of God. Only made righteous but by what Christ would do for him on the cross. God declared him righteous on the basis of what Christ would do in bearing his sins in the future. And he was devout. He loved the Lord on the inside, in his heart, not just on the outside. He had a sincere faith and a growing relationship with the Lord, even as he longed for a closer one. He cultivated godliness and practiced the presence of God. He was righteous and devout. He was probably very familiar with Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I have beheld you in the sanctuary and have seen your power and, and your glory. And your love is better than life itself. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. And our passage tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting. But it was a waiting that was active. He waited on God as he was waiting for God. Waiting for the Messiah, the Consoler, the Comforter. Simeon was also probably very familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. Some may know these words through one of the great tenor arias from Handel's Messiah. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the crooked straight, and the rough places plain. Simeon, like all Jewish kids, would have learned and perhaps memorized these words. He very likely was steeped in the Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Another great chorus from Handel's Messiah. This is what Simeon was waiting for, what he was hoping for. This was the song that filled Simeon's heart and mind and fueled his attention, his adoration, his allegiance, and his activity. Every day in the temple, it was a waiting that was full of life and full of hope, not just empty ritual. This was where Simeon got his theology. 
Simeon knew the prophet Isaiah, and he knew that Isaiah had prophesied comfort in Jerusalem. And he knew there was no comfort in empty, legalistic ritual, no comfort or consolation in unbelief and sin, and no comfort in Jerusalem from an occupying Roman army. Simeon was part of that small remnant, that tiny group of people who were looking for the Messiah, the consoler of Israel. Only a few in Israel took seriously and believed what the prophets had said. For the most part, the whole nation of Israel was in a state of apostasy. They were unsaved, and they were hypocrites, talking about God on the outside, serious about their legalistic approach to things, and zealous concerning their traditions, customs, and rituals. But their hearts were far from God. And one more thing about Simeon. Our text says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon, righteous, devout, waiting for the Messiah, part of the remnant, and Holy Spirit led. What did that mean at that time to be Holy Spirit led? This was more than 30 years before the day of Pentecost. But we should realize that the Holy Spirit has been in the work, at work, in the lives of believers from the very beginning. No Old Testament saint ever came to a saving knowledge of God without the work of the Holy Spirit in them, convicting them of sin, causing them to know that their righteousness, their good works, were not enough. It was the Holy Spirit that assured them that somehow God would forgive their sin and provide a way. When David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, it is that same Holy Spirit that indwelt Simeon and that is indwelling us today. It was through the Holy Spirit that they trusted God for their forgiveness and their salvation. But now, as the Word becomes flesh, we get the sense that there is a new dimension, a new expression of the work of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit filled John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb. And Elizabeth, his mother, filled with the Spirit, gives a prophetic word to her younger cousin Mary. And we know that Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit because the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And not only to plant the Son of God in her womb, but also to speak divine revelation. My soul magnifies the Lord. And John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Spirit and he prophesied. And there seems to be a pattern with Luke that the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them shows a special anointing to speak for God. That through the Holy Spirit, they had received a word from the Lord. I think this is an overused and certainly misused 
concept in the religious world today. But Simeon had received a word from the Lord. It says that he had been given insight ahead of time into the timing, the perfect timing of God's deliverance. He knew that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And now it seems that Simeon, the man from Jerusalem, and Luke doesn't say if he was a priest, but he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, part of God's remnant, and now with the Holy Spirit upon him, he goes into the temple. And Luke doesn't tell us, but I think Simeon is a temple regular. He would go to the services, even though they were only a formal ritual for most. But Simeon would have seen past the dead forms of the rituals because he knew it was just a shadow of the real thing that would come. And then on that day, a divine encounter, Joseph and Mary led by the Spirit, and Simeon also led by the Spirit, somehow bump into each other. Here Luke, the thorough and detailed historian, doesn't give us as much information as we would like. Don't you think there must have been a long conversation between the end of verses 27 and the beginning of verse 28? But the narrative just jumps ahead to the words, he took him in his arms. How did we get there so fast? The story seems to cry out for more details. The temple area would have been the outer courtyard because it was the only place that women could go. This was not the holy of holies. There would have been many people milling about, perhaps other women there with their babies, purifications going on, other ceremonies, other sacrifices, and all kinds of families. So we don't know exactly how they met. We wish there was a paragraph explaining it, and we don't know what Simeon was thinking. And was there a conversation? The Spirit of God may have prompted Simeon to walk right up to them and say, is this child the promised Messiah? And then Mary and Joseph would have said, yes, here he is. And perhaps then in their excitement, they would have told Simeon the long, amazing, miraculous story all about the angel visit, the promise made, the birth in a manger, the shepherds, and the rest. But all Luke says is that they met, and he took Jesus in his arms. Let me read what John MacArthur says here. He took him into his arms, the little baby. One can only try to imagine what Simeon was feeling when he scooped that little, soft, warm baby out of Mary's arms and pressed him to his chest and then perhaps leaned down and, as the Christmas song says, kissed the face of God. One can only imagine what kind of joy flooded his heart, what kind of thrill came over him 
as he realized that the promises of God had come to pass and he was holding in his hands the Messiah, the Comforter, the Consoler of Israel, Savior of the world. A very different gesture than when a few years later the Jews got Jesus in their hands. And they whipped him and scourged him and beat him and crowned him with thorns and nailed him to a cross. But for now, it's all joy. Simeon blessed God. There's a phrase packed with meaning. Simeon blessed God. He was filled with joy not only because of what he had seen, but because of what he believed would happen. We often talk today in the Christian faith about being in a state of tension between the already and the not yet. But Simeon wasn't stuck in this dilemma. For him, the already so overwhelmed the not yet that he couldn't contain himself. He didn't know all the details of how God would accomplish his salvation through this child named Jesus. He couldn't see into the future. But he knew, he was convinced that somehow God's salvation would be accomplished. It would happen. For Simeon, the Messiah was just a helpless baby, silent and submissive. As those around him, those who were entrusted to care for him, fulfilled the requirements of the law for him and testified to his identity with truthfulness and integrity. And how much more so for us. We know things that Simeon never knew. But do we live with the same sense of joy and thanksgiving that Simeon had? That same sense of anticipation and urgency that Simeon did? Simeon had no doubt that this baby Jesus was the savior of the world. Do we? Simeon knows that he has seen the salvation of God and he is so sure that now he is ready to die. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. This song, Simeon's song, is known as the Nunc Dimittis, taken from the Latin translation of the first two words, now dismiss. Since as early as the fourth century, believers have been intoning, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. These words were so considered so fitting for the hope-filled child of God that John Calvin encouraged that they be sung at the end of every worship service. And this song personifies Simeon's attitude. Lord, right now, I can die. 
get me out of here. This is the moment I've lived for. You told me I would live to see the Christ, and now I have seen him. I'm ready to go. Simeon's testimony is so firm that he is willing to die. He knows nothing can top this. You may have heard the expression, see Paris and die. Or is it see Rome and, and die? It means that it is such a lovely sight that once you've seen it, there's nothing more to see. It's been said that some Muslims who have gone to Mecca in their fanaticism do a strange and horrible thing that after having seen the tomb of the prophet Muhammad, they would take a shaft of hot steel and place it over their eyes so that they may never see anything else again. Their last image being the tomb of a false prophet. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart. And that is all death will be for the believer, a departing, a goodbye to the shadow lands and saying hello to the real world, to a place where the real living will begin, better than the best homecoming you have ever experienced, a place prepared for you. Do me a favor, Lord, let me depart in peace. For the Christian, death is not something to be dreaded because we do have peace. We have peace with God through Christ Jesus. Judgment is not something to be feared. He will present us perfect before God without blemish and free from accusation. But apart from Christ, there is no peace in death. There is no peace in life. My eyes have seen thy salvation. Christ is God's salvation. Salvation is found in no other. No name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. Charles Spurgeon writes, Christ is everything to me at all times a winter Christ and a summer Christ, all my light when I have no other, and all my light when I have every other light. Jesus, a light to lighten the Gentiles. This is no small salvation. This is a salvation that goes beyond just bringing back a remnant of the tribes of Jacob, this is an all-encompassing salvation even for those who could not enter the temple. Prepared for the face of some people? No. This is hope for all the world. To the Jews first and then to everybody. Simeon did not have a narrow vision, but through the Holy Spirit he foresaw a salvation for people of every tongue and nation and the glory of thy people Israel Jesus is the greatest glory of Israel 
It's not the law of Moses, not the writings of Isaiah, not the temple and its rituals, and not the considerable gifts and talents of the Jewish people. We might think of their artistic and literary and intellectual skills. Jesus is the greatest Jew, the Shekinah of Israel. He is everything that we need. And it is true for all of us, all of you. Everything that your family needs, everything that your neighbor needs, everything that Philadelphia needs, everything that Republicans and Democrats need, everything that cops and protesters need, everything, everyone, everywhere needs. Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about their child. But Simeon had one last thing to say, and then he would be done. Blessing, but then warning. Fall and rising, collapse and ruin. Jesus, a sign that is opposed. Or in some translations, a sign that is spoken against. He is the firm foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. But he is also the stone that the builders rejected. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the outside world and a stumbling block to Israel. You've probably noticed that no one has come up to you lately and asked, what must I do to be saved? Or tell me more about this Jesus. I want to know him too. And traffic jams on Sunday mornings are still rare events. And even after Jesus' ministry on earth was finished, three years of teaching and miracles, his death on a cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, there were still only 120 people who gathered together in the upper room on that day of Pentecost, a small remnant. He is opposed. He is spoken against. His name is used most often as a curse word, not as a revered name. And his name is increasingly shut out of almost all civil and government discourse. To even mention Jesus is strangely awkward and might even be considered hate speech. And in many places throughout the word, world, the mere mention of his name could get you killed. On that day in the temple long ago, Simeon, this man from Jerusalem, gave a clear proclamation of the long-awaited Messiah. And yet it appears no celebration broke out. No one except a handful paid any attention. Joseph and Mary and their baby simply returned home. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And later, even Mary, his mother, even she would have her doubts. But Simeon, Simeon recognized him. 
And as Simeon recognized him and received Jesus, and here it is, wait, wait for it. Jesus received Simeon. Like Simeon, our salvation is right before our eyes. Don't be satisfied with a form of religion that has no power. Embrace the Lord's Christ, no longer a baby, no longer on a cross, no longer laid in a tomb. Embrace the Lord's Christ, high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father, with all authority in heaven and on earth. What does this Jesus mean to you? Is he your comfort, your consoler? Have you seen in him your total salvation? Have you put all your hope in him? Are you able to answer the question raised in the Heidelberg Confession? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Is your answer this? that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. On this day, can you say together with Simeon, my eyes have seen your salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we long to see you with the clear perception of Simeon. Enable us to see you as you are, the Lord's Christ, our substitute, the Lamb of God who died for us, that we may live. Lord, our, our minds and hearts cannot take all of that in. It's beyond us. So move in us that day by day and in this new year, we would be able to more fully grasp the beauty and the greatness of your wonderful salvation. And we pray this according to your word. Amen.